Any mining companies out there, please mine more nickel. <laughs> okay. Wherever you are in the world, please mine more nickel and, and, and don't wait for nickel to go back to some long, some high point. Why has Elon Musk stopped talking about uh, nickel and only talking about lithium? Welcome back to Rockstock Channel. It is Thursday, July 27th. And uh, for the first time in, in a little while, we're going to talk about something other than lithium. Nickel is in focus today. If we go back a few years, Elon Musk said mine more nickel and a bunch of nickel development stories rallied aggressively ahead of Battery Day in uh, September 2020. Wherever you are in the world, please mine more nickel. Go for efficient you know, obviously environmentally friendly nickel mining at high volume. If Tesla will give you a con giant contract for a long period of time, <laughs> if you mine nickel efficiently and in, in an environmentally sensitive way. Before we get into the video, we'd like to announce that we have our very first sponsor, Zolandas. Zolandas offers brinefield services and has the technology to speed up understanding of your lithium resources. We'll tell you more about them later, but until then, check out Zolandes.com. We're also excited to share that we are now sponsored as well by Lithium Royalty Corp. Stay tuned for later in the video to hear more about them. We continue to you know, follow the story, or follow the nickel market, and we saw a great note from our friends at Benchmark Minerals that caught our eye about the rise of Indonesia. And there's a lot of debate and discussion about Indonesia and their growth and if it's sustainable or is it, you know, going to be IRA compliant? Uh, these are some questions we'll, we'll, we'll get into with uh, the benchmark uh, writers of that note. We have Harry Fisher in Brisbane and Bruno Grossel in London who wrote this note, which we'd encourage you to read. And uh, there are some slides from that as well as some slides from a recent benchmark uh, events on nickel that uh, we'll dive in, you know, here. Harry, if you could just like just start with an overview, there's always these charts about what is the demand, how much is demand going to grow of nickel over the next, you know, decade or so, how many new mines are needed, you know, there's class one nickel, class two, sulfide, laterite, you know, there's always a debate, you know, either or, we think it's obviously both. What's going on in the nickel market, the nickel price has not been doing so well. The nickel, nickel developers are, are not doing so well. Like, why has Elon Musk stopped talking about uh, nickel and only talking about lithium? Uh, so just start with just a general overview and, and a brief introduction of uh, yourself and, and what you do specifically, you know, for Benchmark. And, and we'll start with that. Thanks. Thanks, Howard, for the introduction. As you said, I'm, I'm based in Brisbane. Um, I primarily work within Benchmark's consultancy division. I work on a variety of kind of strategic pieces through the value chain, but kind of mostly focus on, on nickel and cobalt. So the, the nickel market is still, still very much dependent on, on stainless steel demand. It's still not a battery dominant market as, as we see for, for cobalt and lithium, for example. Um, the market today is kind of in the region of about 3.2 million tons. Two thirds of that is still stainless steel demand. Looking ahead, by kind of 2030, the market will exceed 5 million tons. So there's still quite substantial amount of growth over the next kind of five to 10 years. And that kind of trend will continue. And the share of battery demand as a kind of proportion of the overall market will, will increase as well. So stainless 
will drop to about 50% um, as battery demand takes a, takes a greater share. Um, and that's really why we're interested in, in nickel at benchmark, of course, and, and why the, the nickel market gets a lot of, a lot of coverage in this space. Nickel's a, a critical part of those battery chemistries, and we'll probably get onto that later on. But it's, yeah, got a very strong growth story, perhaps not as strong, say, as lithium, but still we're seeing kind of doubling or tripling of demand over the long term and very much still going to be a, a need for, for new project development, even with the, the large volumes coming out of Indonesia. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Howard, for an introduction. I'm Bruna. I'm based in London and I work for the sustainability team within Benchmark. I myself am uh, more focused on the life cycle assessments, so understanding those environmental impacts of processing minerals such as nickel, cobalt, lithium, and, and graphites. Uh, we cover a range of these materials within our ESG reports, and we also do bespoke work on LCAs. Very recently, we, we had an amazing opportunity to go visit some sites and, and, and see in person how those processing technologies work, uh, the challenges that uh, those companies face, and, and, and to discuss a bit of them on how are their levels of ESG considerations within, within their uh, activities. Yeah, we took some pictures uh, along the way of, of, of some of the impacts that we were able to see firsthand. It's going to be a pleasure to, to talk about the visit and, and what we have been doing here in Benchmark. Okay, great. We would encourage everybody to read that article. Not everything that Benchmark puts out is for free. Actually, very little is put out for free. But this article is uh, uh, is for free. I read it, and and that's what prompted us to you know have this interview. So, all right, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, a little bit later, Bruno. But Harry, what's going on in the nickel market? Like I said, you know, commodity equities follow commodity prices, and uh, the nickel price has been weak. Commodity equities have largely been weak, but you see Andrew Forrest's Wailu Metals has made another acquisition of Mincor uh, from March. It's about to close. Uh, that follows their acquisition of Neurant last year, which was a, a bidding war with, I think, BHP. So one of the smartest mining investors in the world is betting on you know, Western Australian sulfide deposit in Mincor and in Canada you know, with, with Neurant. So Canada and Australia obviously have a role in the nickel market, but you're seeing a ton of Chinese investment in Indonesia and you're seeing, uh, you know, what made headlines yet Ford and CATL are doing a deal with YU Cobalt, I don't know, $4 billion or something. You're Ford, I don't know how much they're investing in that. That's getting some political heat in America, I think. Uh, you know, and on the other hand, you have Elon Musk and Tesla you know, has, has made a deal with Talon Metals, which is sulfide deposits. They only one really in the U.S. And, and the Department of Energy, you know, has granted, you know, some money to Talon. So if you just like help analyze for us what's what's happening, because this is Rockstock Channel, we're focused on how to make money with, you know, development and, and producing equities. It's not so easy to invest in Indonesian, you know, plays for nickel, but you're going to show us, you know, how much growth there has been in the Indonesian nickel supply. Yeah, there's a lot in that lead-in. If you could just address all of those considerations, please. Yeah, sure. So just to kind of set the scene, really, kind of where we're at in terms of price environment today, the LME nickel price is kind of sitting around the twenty-one thousand dollars per ton mark, um, which 
given market conditions is is fairly good that's a that's a fairly strong strong nickel price i guess the the caveat to that is the lme has seen quite a lot of turbulence in the last 12 15 16 months since the short squeeze last april um and that's really rocked confidence in using lme as an exchange for for nickel trading and the the liquidity on that exchange has dropped substantially since that short squeeze and, and not really recovered anywhere near the levels before that so we're kind of in this environment where the the lme price is strong but maybe the level of liquidity is is not really in line with that and and perhaps the lme price isn't entirely representative of, of where the overall market is at because well, what we're seeing more broadly is the market is in surplus um the, we, we're seeing the market surplus growing through this year and maintaining a decent surplus of kind of 200,000 tons or so this year and next year. And that will then start to kind of steadily decline. But it is a it is a relatively slow decline because there's just so much supply coming onto the market. So we don't see the market shifting back into a deficit until the late 2020. So kind of 2028 onwards. And that obviously has an impact on price. So the kind of the $21,000 per ton price we're kind of seeing drop over the, over the short term. We've got prices kind of averaging kind of 19 or 20,000 in the short term. And then our kind of long term marginal kind of incentive prices is, is around the $20,000 per ton mark. So we see a bit of weakness in pricing in the, in the short to medium term, but I guess the long term picture for for the nickel market is still strong because we're seeing that big wave of of demand, which does eventually outpace even all of this supply that's coming to the market. Harry, if I can just jump in there, uh, you know, when you say supply, can you pass that down into class one and two? Because obviously there's a, a distinction there in terms of, you know, how much of that oversupply is for stainless, say, and, and how much is for EV? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. That the, the For those who are kind of less familiar with this terminology, class one and class two has kind of been the traditional way in which the market's been, been divided. Class one is, is deliverable on the LME. Kind of class two is, is everything else, really. And so the, the LME nickel is kind of a variety of, of metal products. And then kind of now we're starting to see much larger volumes of MPI and ferronickel that are that are class two. And, and that's kind of impacting the, the kind of the relative balance of, of those parts of the market. So we've seen a kind of a growing surplus for class two more recently. But class one still being kind of a bit tighter, but we're starting to see more class one supply coming onto the market this year and next year. And that will mean that the kind of the overall market surplus is probably a bit more balanced between those two parts of the market. And, and that's when we're going to start seeing some downward pressure on the price. I guess the, the thing to consider really for, for now and looking ahead is that kind of class one and class two distinction is probably less relevant than it has been in the past. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is on the demand side is that stainless steel demand is kind of gradually becoming less relevant for the overall market as battery demand grows. So that that kind of major driver historically of the nickel market is starting to kind of mature and and, and become less relevant. And also there's a lot more class two units coming to the market and, and new routes that are enabling producers to move between class one and class two. 
So that kind of quite clear distinction that we've seen previously is becoming a bit more blurred. And that means that perhaps the the market dynamics that were quite separate before are overlapping. So it, it's it's a very complicated market. There's there's lots of new supply routes coming all the time. Even in the last kind of 12, 18 months, we're seeing new established supply routes. But it, it's it's enabling opportunities for, for different parts of the supply chain. So just, just to quick summarize on that, uh, as far as EV battery demand goes, you don't see nickel then as a pinch point for some time then? No, the, the demand growth from, from EVs is obviously very strong as 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 sales increase and, and from other battery applications, kind of as, as energy storage increases, for example. But there's plenty of there's plenty of nickel out there at the moment and in the coming years to support that market. And and that's why we're seeing kind of an overall market surplus, at least until towards the end of the decade. That the vast majority of that growth will come from will come from Indonesia and and a lot of that is from MHP which is for those who, who don't know what MHP is that's mixed hydroxide precipitate which is which is not a new product but certainly seeing a lot of growth from new high pressure acid leach capacity in Indonesia MHP contains both nickel and cobalt so it's kind of solving two problems at the same time when it comes to the the battery supply chain and we're we're now seeing mhp already as the key feedstock towards nickel sulfate that goes that goes directly into those battery chemistries um and that share of mhp going into sulfate will continuously grow in in the forecast period this is my relatively lower knowledge in the nickel market but i remember i was at a benchmark event the very first one, I think, in uh, California in, in like 2017, and a couple of people who were focused on you know low-grade sulfide deposits in Canada were, were kind of educating me and saying that HPAL is dirty. It, 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 you know, it's never worked. It's super expensive, and here you are, you know, six years later, basically saying that it's working. Yeah, and and that that's why there's less of this distinction between class one and class two. And that's where, you know, there's a crazy chart I think you're, you have here showing, you know, Indonesia's percentage of the overall nickel market growing from like 5% to 50%. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, the uh, total global supply in Indonesia is now half of the global market. I forget exactly the year. I think it was 2015, perhaps, that, that it was 5%. Yeah, it's, it's seen a, a monumental rise, um, really, over a very short period of time. Uh, yeah, already half of the market. And, and if you if you kind of look at the, the forward view, we're now tracking more than 70 nickel producing projects in Indonesia. Um, in early 2021, that was kind of 2025. Um, so that we've seen 50 new projects in the space of two and a half years. And Indonesia could support 60, 65% of nickel supply over in, in 10 years time. Okay, but the knock on this was that this is dirty nickel, right? Because they're like pumping waste into the oceans and it's coal fired in Indonesia and, you know, that this would never be sustainable for the Fords and the GMs and the Teslas of the world. So has that, is that accurate or has that, are they cleaning up their act? So just to kind of give some, give some context on your previous point on H-Power, H-Power is not a new technology. It has had its issues in the past. We've seen, we've seen projects go 
massively overrun, massively over budget. Um, so there was there was a lot of skepticism when these projects started popping up in Indonesia a couple of years ago. And this has all really come since the the export ban was was introduced in in Indonesia in 2020. So that's kind of the background. But what what these Indonesian projects have managed to do is with the support of quite a significant amount of Chinese investment and expertise, they've been able to get these projects up and running on time, some are even ahead of schedule, very, very capital efficient. And they've been able to ramp up on time and even commit to fairly significant expansions early on in their in their ramp up period. Just in terms of kind of the environmental piece, I'll pass over to Bruna just to kind of give a bit of an introduction there as as she's the expert. But I think it's important to note that not every not every nickel producer in Indonesia is the same. There's a variety of different routes that get you to nickel in Indonesia. HPAL is one of them um, producing MHP and that's the primary route for battery supply chain, but I, I certainly wouldn't call it all dirty. There's there's different levels of ESG compliance across the country, different level levels of emission profile, different areas that they're they're trying to address in terms of their overall ESG picture. Um, but I I, I certainly wouldn't say that the H power's technology is dirty. Um, but there are there are aspects that need to be carefully managed. I'll I'll pass over to Bruno just to give a bit more background. Jumping in here from the editing room to tell you more about our very first sponsor, Zalandez. Zalandez provides services in subsurface data visualization, downhole geophysics, and other services for lithium brine operations. They just expanded into North America, and no matter where you sit in the brine industry, Zalandez can help you speed up and improve your projects. Go to zalandez.com for more. We'd like to introduce a great new sponsor for Rockstock Channel, Lithium Royalty Corp. Lithium Royalty Corp. is at the center of a global energy transition and manages a globally diversified portfolio of lithium-focused royalties in electrification and decarbonization. With 32 royalties on 29 higher-grade, low-cost projects from exploration to production, Lithium Royalty Corp. covers all the bases with well-managed risk, ESG considerations, and a scalable royalty structure. Lithium Royalty Corp. is publicly traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange, ticker symbol LIRC. To find out more about Lithium Royalty Corp., visit lithiumroyaltycorp.com. Thank you, Harry. Yeah, you're completely right. It's, uh, there is a lot that you need to take in consideration when, when on, on analyzing such processes. So the, the two biggest processing technologies in Indonesia, it's HPOL and RTF, so rotary key on electric furnace. Both are very carbon intensive at the moment, but RTF is the worst of them because of the low grade of nickel in, in its material. We talk about uh, 3 to 15% in, uh, of nickel in the final product. So you need a lot of processing to get to that low amount of nickel and a lot of energy and coal. And the main challenge with those technologies is their reliance on fossil fuel. So the electricity in Indonesia rely a lot on, on, on the, the coal production, and, and, and that's what's driving the carbon intensity behind those processes. There is some engagement, though, to, to introduce more renewables to the country, which, uh, which are more than welcome. But there are still a few technologies, um, limitants that, that, might, that might not show such uh, effect of, of renewables in place as well. So that's why I think Howard Cohen plays and say that it's seen as dirty. It's because of that high carbon footprint 
that it, it's trying to be tackled by the companies by, by adding renewables and, and looking closely at their operations. Uh, within LCAs, we, we look at a range of environmental impacts, as is worth mentioning also terrestrial acidification from uh, emissions of sulfur dioxide, basically because of the use of sulfuric acid in the HPOP production. I don't want to get too technical there, but it's an emission that leads to damage to the terrestrial ecosystems. So it damages to the species there. And another thing that is important to mention on operations in Indonesia is the uh, devastating impact that it can have on biodiversity. I think when we talk about the process, we think more on those direct emissions, but there is also impact of deforestation, uh, impacts on the biodiversity of the local coral reefs. And it, it would be a mistake to not touch on those points. We know that there is a lot of companies doing a lot to engage on those issues and to either remediate or mitigate the impacts. This is important to say that, as, as Harry was saying, that there are different levels of compliance towards these topics. And we see companies that are striving to do their best to, to not impact such um, diverse ecosystems. But from an overall perspective, our, our sustainability team has seen that for for example, the 47 companies operating in the area, only 11 of them publish ESG reports or uh, corporate sustainability reports. And th from those 11, only four publish uh, indicators on, on biodiversity monitoring. So there is a lot to improve. I think we can say that there is different levels of compliance, but there is still from those companies operating, there is a lot to, 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 do, to do better. So if I could just like parse this a little bit uh, again, Elon Musk said mine more nickel ahead of battery day. But you also said that Indonesia put in uh, some export ban, I guess, forcing development downstream. That development downstream is happening in size by Chinese and resulting in a lot of nickel supply out of Indonesia, as you're as you're showing. So Elon is not talking about nickel too much because supply has increased, but also maybe because he's uh, shifted a little bit, you know, to LFP. But there is also this question of like IRA compliance. So that the pictures you, you sent us, Bruno, which we're going to put up here of and, and your description of, uh, you know, blue oceans, you know, turning brown. Uh, I, I can't imagine that, you know, the Ford CATL, why you deal, um, is that picture. Is that, is that correct? Like there's, there's dirtier and, and, and less dirty. It's project by project. Is that fair? Yeah, it all depends on how they procure those, those materials, right? It's, they, have, they need a due diligence step in place to make sure that their material is not coming from such mines. This is not the overall, uh, what we see in the overall Indonesian operation. This is like particular spots that, that happen, usually illegal mines that are operating without the proper uh, government uh, approval, which would uh, be closed down according to, to, to government regulations. Uh, it's an issue of improper drainage, and uh, it, it, it's something that needs to be tackled. But companies can have a handle on it if they are if they have a, a careful due diligence process. Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're right, Bruno. It's 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 not a it's not seen across the board. That's that's one example, but that doesn't mean it's less of an issue. It's I think some of it is to do with the rapid development in the country as well. I think some of the some of the projects that we've seen have been kind of set up in a very logical manner and and gone for a 
very rigorous um, planning process where others have just kind of been added quickly into a, into a very small area, which which leads to, to some logistical and, and, and other issues. So it is, you're right, Howard, it's very much um, project by project. And I think that's the important thing to consider for, for anyone looking at this this value chain. Okay. And then let's talk a little bit about like IRA compliance and the like, because the IRA is, 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 is written for geopolitical, you know, not tied to China, you know, considerations and, or not just reliant on one country for so much. I mean, 50% market share for one country in Indonesia, that's, that's a lot, you know, so there's a sustainability aspect of it, which obviously all the OEMs care about, but in terms of, you know, the U S market and you know, having a competitive advantage uh, with, with, with cheaper costs. Uh, Indonesia is not a, a free trade agreement, you know, country with the United States and similar to like lithium in Argentina, you know, there's lobbying going on, um, you know, and there's still a lot of lobbying going on, you, you know, with Indonesia. So, you know, w- will there be premiums, you know, for let's say Australia, you know, Canada, US source, you know, sulfide deposits, is a question uh, that you've addressed, I think, in, in some of your publications. And, and do you think, given how there's just not a lot of nickel around necessarily, you know, outside of Indonesia, you know, will uh, in the will there be some loophole or or some adjustments to the IRA to let Indonesia slip in, you know, for for that? Yeah, I, I think the the fact of the matter is is that without Indonesia as part of the IRA, then then most companies are going to struggle to hit their targets for for nickel and obviously those procurement targets from fta or kind of some kind of trade agreement countries ramp up over time so it becomes increasingly difficult to hit your targets if you don't have access to a country that's producing 50 60 65 percent of global supply i guess that's that's in simple terms how it is it's obviously a bit more nuanced than that when you start digging into the details of the ira but i think for that reason and and we've spoken to to people within within the US and within Indonesia as well, there's certainly some a lot of discussions ongoing to, about how Indonesia could be included in the IRA in some manner. They won't necessarily have a full tr- free trade agreement, but we've already seen exceptions for Japan. Um, there's something in the pipeline for the EU as well. So there's ways in which the IRA can be adjusted and it's still in in very early stages, how the policy wording can be adjusted to allow Indonesia in in some way. The, the next big barrier is the level of Chinese investment. And that's obviously something that's that's core to core to the IRA. Um, and that will mean that some of the nickel production in Indonesia probably never becomes IRA compliant because of the level of Chinese investment. And, and that, that proportion varies. Some some have got lower proportions of Chinese investment, but at the moment, all, all of the nickel production has got some kind of Chinese involvement when it comes to the battery supply chain. And, and that's not going to change in the short term. There's one project um, from BASF and Aramet that doesn't involve Chinese funding, but the rest do. So that's going to, that will be the, even if Indonesia somehow get part of the kind of the IRA wording that will be the next barrier is what what's the level in which you you're eliminated because of of chinese investment so that i guess that opens up opportunities to to other parts of the supply chain um the kind of the the most notable fta countries when it comes to nickel are probably australia and canada um strong mining jurisdictions strong investment environments good operating environments 
established nickel producers, they likely to benefit from the IRA and and the incentives that that brings, whether that's a premium or otherwise. I think there's certainly impetus in in the junior mining community to kind of make the most of these policy frameworks. And yeah, that those there's and there's plenty of them. There's plenty of development projects in Australia and Canada for nickel. The, the the difficulty will be there'll be two things really it's it's production costs of course it always is in in potentially a weaker nickel price environment you've got to be pretty cost competitive to compete with with very very low cost production coming out of Indonesia that's one and the second thing is is the process route there's so many different process routes that get you from a mining project through to a some kind of nickel intermediate or finished product. And that will be really important for the battery supply chain. As I said, MHP is the dominant, pro- uh, the dominant product going into nickel sulfate, and that will remain the case. So if you can get to MHP or, or something along those lines, then you'll ha- already have an advantage. Um, but not, not every nickel unit is equal, really, when it comes to the battery supply chain. So that will, that will also come into, the, come into the equation alongside cost. But certainly the, the IRA should help those projects in FTA countries. So if we if we focus a bit more on kind of the North American market, there's of course incumbent nickel metal producers in that region that in future, if there is a shortage of IRA compliant units, then there may potentially be a, some kind of IRA premium on offer for those units to be diverted into the battery supply chain. This is all kind of hypothetical at this stage, but there's certainly potential for that to happen. And that would prov- potentially provide even more benefit for any kind of nickel project in in the US or Canada. So Harry, just in terms of the market outlook that you've had, I mean, I've run the numbers on battery cell costs and so on. If you're talking eight or nine dollars a pound, nickel roughly, and and cobalt we've seen come under some pressure. So if we combine that with the recycling side of things and what the value is, you know, black mass, NMC versus LFP, et cetera. If, if nickel is sub $20,000 a ton and cobalt remains muted and you, you, but you've got the recovery values, you know, does that, does that make NMC competitive again against LFP? Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. And, and there's obviously a lot of levers that affect the, the relative competitiveness, both on the commercial side, but also on the consumer side. We're we're seeing still a kind of a, a relatively split market between LFP and NCM going forwards. LFP has obviously been across all the headlines. It's certainly defied all expectations. I feel we'll put our hands up and, and say that. I don't think any analyst can really say that they they probably predicted the rise of of LFP as we've seen. But it is still very much a, a China dominant story. Virtually all of the LFP cathode suppliers from from China at the moment. There are some projects in other parts of the world, but they're still a little way off. Um, so it will remain a China story for the time being. Uh, we, we've got LFP as kind of an overall share. It's it's probably going to peak in kind of the mid to high 40%. It's about 44% of the market this year versus NCM, which is kind of 43, 44. So they're pretty neck and neck already. LFP will probably overtake on a global level over the next couple of years uh, before leveling off and, and yeah, in the kind of, mid 40s level and then ncm will continue to rise through the kind of the late decade to kind of towards 50 percent. so uh, overall ncm will will be stronger and and there's there's various reasons for that um some of it's due to recycling as you said some of it's due to 
cost. Some of it's due to it, further technology improvements that are in the pipeline and there's potential there for NCM, whereas they've probably already been um, taken advantage of for LFP. So that there's a variety of things, but I've, there's still kind of, there's always this argument which one's going to take over and, and we're still very much of the view that there's space in the market for both, but they will serve different purposes. Yeah, I guess, you know, if, if my question is along the lines of if, if the EV platforms become open so that you can be interchangeable as to what you put in the vehicle, some of them at any rate, I'm just wondering if we see subdued nickel prices and, and, and cobalt prices coming from acceptable sources that, you know, that, that NMC could have a pickup because what you're saying is it doesn't seem to be a supply problem coming from for nickel. And uh, no, it's, yeah, it's, it's a very good point because we're, we're certainly expecting weaker pricing for, for nickel um, in the short to medium term and, and cobalt's obviously had a, a pretty horrible kind of 12, 18 months. Um, and looks like the pain will be sustained. So if you're looking at kind of input costs for, for the chemical producers and for the, for the precursor and cathode supply chain, um, then certainly NCM will become more competitive. Okay. So uh, just to wrap up a little bit or just a, a few additional comments, we've seen in lithium, you're seeing like lots of uh, investment from OEMs, offtake agreements. I think you have had, a, we'll flash up a slide here. You're saying LG, you know, has done some, making some investments. Uh, Ford, we mentioned, Tesla, we mentioned with Talon. Uh, GM, you know, made investment, you know, in Queensland. Nickel, actually, that's all on the processing side. And and so is actually the, the Ford deal is on the processing side, not actually getting into, into mining. Capital intensity, you know, historically was very high, I thought, for these laterites, but you're, you now actually have a chart you know, that show actually capital intensity is pretty good, you know, for the laterites and, and sulfides are, are, are expensive. But again, you have to differentiate between high grade sulfide, you know, and low grade sulfide. And like anything, if the price is not just going to rise inexorably, uh, and in fact, it's going to be flat to down, this is a commodity, you know, more so than lithium is a specialty chemical. Nickel, it all comes down to capital intensity, operating cost. If you have high grade, if you have good byproducts, you know, those projects will succeed. And that must be behind why uh, groups like Wailu Metals have taken off market, you know, companies that, that were public with a long term view that you have Australian and, uh, and Canadian, uh, you know, Sulfide, I mean, sulfide projects are, are very, very, very lucrative. I mean, IGO Limited, which is now in the lithium space, but, you know, it's kind of made its name in nickel, you know, has has software margins of 63, 65% based on their extreme low end of the cost curve. So the more nickel will be needed outside of Indonesia. There are a lot of sulfide projects, but all viewers here, in, 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 when you look at the nickel scoreboard for RK equity, there's not a lot of Indonesian projects. I don't know if there are any, you, you know, so if you're, you're, you're placing some bets, if you made a bet on Narant, if you made a bet on, on Mincor, you know, you've done well. If you made a bet on Talon Metals, which is a, a client of RK equities and an investment of ours, it had a great run, you know, from the mine more nickel days in 2020, you know, but it's almost come full circle. Companies like this and projects like this will be needed. It takes a long time, as we all know, probably, you know, eight to 10 years or longer, you know, to go from exploration in, and, and get a get a project 
you know, funded and, and, and into production. So there's opportunity there, but uh, you got to have a long-term view, be patient. And we really appreciate this update, Harry and Bruna. Um, again, we spend just a little bit of time on, on nickel and graphite, you know, the bulk of our time on lithium, but your note was uh, timely. And, and for those who care about nickel, it, it is still an essential mineral, you know, for the, the, the battery supply chain. I really appreciate the update. So thanks very much for both of your time and look forward to reconnecting in the future. And all viewers of this channel uh, would encourage you again to get that free article from Benchmark. And if you care about nickel, to continue following all of their nickel commentary.